Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, politics, and education. Today's topic is increasing anti-Semitism on college campuses. Our speaker is Gary Saul Morrison, who is the Lawrence B. Dumas Professor of the Arts and Humanities and Professor of Slavic Languages and Literatures at Northwestern University. Saul's work ranges from literary theory, the history of ideas, and the relation between literature and philosophy in the works of Chekhov, Dostoevsky, and Tolstoy. I want to learn from Saul about what is driving the current wave of anti-Semitism and why it is so universal. Why has the idea of intersectionality been interpreted to be that Jews are the oppressors? And how do you explain organizations that just popped up like Queers for Palestine. And given the anti-Semitic attacks from other progressives, will Jews continue to vote and ally with anti-Israel progressive activists? Buckle up. Saul, can you please begin with your opening six-minute remarks with a framework to understanding anti-Semitism? My topic is the increase in anti-Semitism in the United States on college campuses. The key point I want to make is that it doesn't help to think of anti-Semites as one group. So the first type of anti-Semite is a type we're all familiar with and it shows up in the literature, which is the incorrigible anti-Semite. This is a person who begins with a deep-rooted hatred of Jews and then looks for reasons to justify it. The reasons might matter in how they try to appeal to others, but it doesn't matter in their conviction. And the proof is that if one reason doesn't seem to work, that they go to another. And the history of anti-Semitism has been the switching, this has been one of the remarkable features of it, of completely different justifications. So, you know, you get religious justifications and social justifications and racial justifications, you know. And the Jews are all communists and the Jews are all capitalists. That's what you get with the incorrigible anti-Semite. There really is no way to address. You can't appeal to them with reason, but that's not the only type there is. People who don't think of themselves as anti-Semites, they arrive at anti-Semitic attitudes and policies, but that's not where they start and it's not their motivation. For example, on campuses, quite a number of the ideologies appeal to people in the name of humanistic values we can all share, but think in such a way that, let's say, divide the world into the good guys and the bad guys. And it's common to invoke an ideology where there is no middle ground, so that the world divides neatly into the oppressors and the oppressed. And then you know in advance who to dislike, because they come pre-categorized, and all the bad things that apply to one in the oppressor category apply to all the others. They must be racist, they must be colonialists. Well, the only question is who you slot into which role. Sometimes it's obvious. You know, we can all think of examples where it's obvious. Radical feminists found themselves on the side of the oppressor when they were not sympathetic with some of the trans movement. The Jews then wind up in the oppressor class. They're obviously not guilty of genocide, but anybody who's guilty of something in the bad category is guilty of everything that anybody in the bad category does. In another circumstance, this same sort of thinking might have put the Jews in the victim category. The problem here is the simplistic ideology that sees the world in black and white, 
that won't therefore open your mind to other possibilities of thinking about things. And so the people who do this, you know, are sincerely offended <clears throat> when you accuse them of anti-Semitism, even though they're saying these terrible things, because their motivation genuinely doesn't start there. A third group don't start out as incorrigible anti-Semites, but believe something about Jews or Israel, which is horrible but false. But they believe it. Okay? The example I like to give is if I really dislike Hamas or the Taliban, it isn't because I dislike Arabs or Afghans. It's because of what I know these groups believe in and do. But suppose you believe something about a group that's really horrible, but it's not true. <clears throat> that's with, it, with a great deal of anti-Semites. I recently read a book called The Nazi Conscience. <clears throat> and all these groups were present. You know, after the war, people were interviewed <clears throat> and they completely distanced themselves from anti-Semitism. Clearly, sincerely, they didn't think of themselves as anti-Semites. But then when you question them more, they would say these appalling things about Jews. But they thought those things were the facts as opposed to what the anti-Semites believed, which was nonsense. Okay? They had been convinced of certain things. In Nazi Germany, in the Soviet Union, they have no other source of news. That's what a totalitarian society is. And so you understand why they might believe something that simply isn't true. That's what they're told all the time, and they never hear anything else. But in the United States, you can hear other things. The problem is we now have a phenomenon where people silo themselves. You either believe it because it comes from your source of news, or you discount it in advance because it doesn't come from your source of news. It must be from those bad people, so it must be a lie. So you're guaranteed never to have anything to change your belief. It's this silo effect that potentially could lead you to believe anything, no matter how awful or absurd. Not right away, but if it's repeated often enough, right, you will. And I am much more sympathetic with Russians, you know, or Germans who, you know, fell victim to this because they had no choice. But we do, and so I'm much less sympathetic with the Americans who wind up succumbing when they easily could look for something else. To combat the first kind of anti-Semitism, I don't know what you do. I don't think you can do anything. To combat the second type... You have to change our education system so that the intersectionality type framework, I use it as a shorthand for several types of thinking that are similar, that divides the world simply into the good or bad, which is taught you know, in our secondary schools and our colleges. This is bound to lead to horrible things, not just anti-Semitic, but other horrible things too. Because when you do that, there is a group of people who are irredeemably evil and you can do anything to them. If people were shocked by those who the day that the Hamas attack took place could justify that kind of brutality. They could justify anything. And it wouldn't have to be against Jews. It could be some other group some other time. My favorite comment of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, where he said, the line between good and evil does not run between classes or races or any groups. It runs through every human heart, including your own. When you start thinking this way, you're not going to fall victim to that kind of thing, or much less likely. The third type in the United States, the type where you simply believe something isn't true, we have to persuade people not to silo themselves. Maybe there are decent people who disagree with you. We used to think that, you know, about, well, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats are wrong, but, you know, they're like us. When you wind up with that kind of thing, you silo yourself, and then what you don't realize is you can wind up believing in anything. You have to actually be willing to listen. When did intersectionality enter the school curriculum? And what is the origin 
of this idea? Well, I'm using intersectionality as a shorthand for a certain kind of ideological thinking that relies neatly. It doesn't have a neat beginning. You know, when I was in college during the Vietnam years, it was present, of course, I didn't call it intersectionality then, it was revolutionary thinking. It might come from Maoism or Marxism. There could be different sources of it. It appealed to a relatively small group. But what we've seen in the last 50 years is that group took over university humanities and social science departments. And gradually they introduced more and more of it until it reaches a kind of tipping point where it accelerates. When did we reach that tipping point? My guess is about 15 years ago. That things were very different in the year when 9-11 took place. People were able to pull together. But by 2010, I don't think that was the case anymore. And things have gotten worse and worse since. There is long-standing anti-Semitism in Germany, Russia, and the rest of Europe. And it's also pervasive in the Muslim world. And now today it is commonplace on U.S. college campuses. Why is anti-Semitism universal? It spreads with the ideologies. It's an essential part of Western medieval culture and also certain parts of Islam. And when those ideologies spread, it spreads with it. So that long after Christian anti-Semitism is a thing, mostly a thing of the past, it's come up with justifications that can spread elsewhere. So Marx obviously no Christian, but if you read his essay on the Jews, it reads like medieval or Martin Luther's attacks on Jewish hucksterism and Jewish moneylenders. It was so important first, you know, in the Christian Middle Ages, at a different point, you know, for the Muslims. And in our time, Islamism borrows heavily from other totalitarian ideologies from Nazism and communism. There's also an argument which is that so many people hate Jews means where there's smoke, there's fire, and there's got to be a reason, right? So the more hatred there is, the more hatred there is. Israel has thousands of Thai agricultural workers. On October 7th, Hamas terrorists beheaded and murdered some of them and kidnapped others. Why did Hamas target the Thais if they were not Jews? They're working for the Jews. They're enemies. What Hamas did is what you do when you think you're really dealing with the devil or his minions, right? You hear groups called Feminists for Hamas or Gays for Hamas. Hamas opposes feminist and homosexual rights as we understand them in the West. Why do organizations that were created for a single purpose like gay rights ally with another organization that opposes its core mission? One of my colleagues, when it happened, you know, had a little sign that said, chickens for KFC. The same logic there, right? I think there are two explanations. One of them is, if it's intersectionality, if the Jews are on the bad side and the Palestinians are on the good side and the gays are on the good side and the straights are on the bad side, then it lines up and you don't ask anymore. It's a naive kind of thinking. That's what intersectionality produced. But there's a second reason. If you read the African-American writer Richard Wright, who for a while joined the Communist Party, and he has a famous essay where he explains why he left. These are the people who are going to support blacks in America. After a while, he realized that's just a convenient tool. They actually don't give a damn. What they give a damn is using something that will give them power. <clears throat> when he realized this was what it was, then he left. Many of the people who run these groups know very well what the score is. Advocating for gay rights is like the communists advocating for black rights. 
It's what you do if you want to upset the system. It doesn't matter that Islamists will throw gays off of buildings. You're not really concerned about gays to begin with. So you have the sincere people who just think in an intersectional way, and then you have those who are not sincere but know how to play this game, okay? I keep thinking of who was it, um, Patrice Colors, you know, from Black Lives Matter, who kept repeating that she was a trained Marxist. What is a Marxist trained to do? And she clearly meant not someone who reads Marx. They're trained to think in precisely this way and to know how to use power in this way. She meant Marxist-Leninist, I assume. I imagine they're a minority. You don't need many. And then there are some who their whole lives have been taught, you know, good guys and bad guys. If you start raise people like this from middle school, you're going to get that. Harvard was ranked last by fire in free speech of all American universities. Claudine Gay, the former Harvard president, was an advocate to protect students from the most minor microaggressions, like the use of the wrong pronouns. But with genocide of the Jews, she discovers the virtue of free speech. Is this double standard what upset people? Free speech, if they believed it, is a wonderful standard, but it's not a great double standard. If all along, you know, as you say, they don't, they fight anyone they disagree with, right? And they try to repress anyone they disagree. And all of a sudden, at this point, they claim free speech carries no weight. If they really had always been free speech, it would have made sense. In the case of Harvard, I think it's likely that Claudine Gay really is, you know, an intersectional DEI, but that's how she made her career. And therefore, if the Harvard board picks her, they know what they're getting because she'd been doing that beforehand, dividing the world in that way. There, I take it as a matter of sincere conviction. I think in some places, university administrators learned back in the 60s that if they stand up against the mob, nobody defends them and they get fired. We have to reach the point where boards of trustees and faculty, hopefully, but that's a long shot, will say, no, we really know that this is the right stand to take. We're not going to let the mob get you. That's what it would have to take. But since that doesn't happen, what do you expect the university president to do? If they make the right sort of statement, they're out in a week. The University of Chicago has a free speech policy, which requires that the school will not take political positions that it will be neutral, like Switzerland, as a way to encourage debate on campus. Saul, you have been selected to be part of a working group at Northwestern University to figure out what your school policies should be. Tell us about your organizing principles to establish a free speech movement on campus. The Chicago principle was neutrality. People can take stands, but the university does. That would be a lot better than what we've got, but it's not very good. What college should be doing is teaching people to actually have civil discussions, real dialogue, where they actually listen to people of other points of view. So it's not shouting, it's civil discourse. You teach people empathetic listening, to put themselves in other points of view, to come at, and then learn something in the process. That's what universities should be doing. That goes beyond free speech. It goes beyond neutrality. The university has to be neutral to do that. But it should say, well, if you want to scream awful things, you can do it. But we're trying to teach you to do better than that. Next topic is protest on campus. Students will always be outraged about something. What should be the university rules to encourage civil discourse and allow protesters to articulate their message on campus? You can state your views. What you can't do is 
try to intimidate people. <laughs> That's crossing over into action, right? And clearly what's happened on campus is, is not just stating views. It's way beyond. When you lock people in a room and bang on the door and scream slogans against them, the most generous interpretation of free speech doesn't defend that, right? If you have to draw the line there, you've already lost the battle. What you really have to do is get students from day one to realize what a productive civil dialogue and conversation is. And then they will reject this kind of thing. People won't want to do it because they'll instantly lose support because it runs against the ethos of the campus. But you've got to help create that ethos. Some employers have announced that they will not hire students who sign the pro-Hamas letter or who are affiliated with Students for Justice in Palestine. Some of these students are shocked and upset about this. They feel that the university should be a safe place to express opinions privately, as well as letters to the public at large. Do you think that employers should adopt these hiring practices? The point is that you don't want those people in your organization. You don't want Klansmen in your organization either, right? What you want to avoid is taking that to the point where we don't want Democrats or we don't want Republicans in their organization. You can do that. And in extreme cases like this, it makes sense because they have to work with other people. But you don't want there to be mission creep there where it starts being anybody who we think has bad views on anything we don't hire. It could lead there. And you want to guard against that. There have been several doxing truck incidents at various universities. For example, there was a truck on Columbia's campus that listed the names and showed the faces of students who signed a pro-Palestinian letter blaming Israel for the Hamas attacks against Israeli citizens. First, can you explain what doxing is? Doxing is revealing private information, bank accounts of people so they can be attacked. It comes from the word document. A third party that is completely unaffiliated with the university has used these doxing trucks to ride around campus on public streets. Does the university have a duty to try to stop these doxing trucks or condemn them? If you sign a public document, then you're agreeing to be making it public. I mean, I don't see the problem there. If it was some sort of private conversation, then that's completely unacceptable. But professors are always signing public letters. We denounce this. For somebody then to broadcast what they've made public, I don't see as a problem there. But if you deliberately you know, sign a public document, your name is public. That's why you've signed it. I suspect one motivation for the doxing is that they want to embarrass and shame the students who made the anti-Semitic statements. I think this goes to your classification of the second group of anti-Semites who do not view themselves as anti-Semitic. Instead, they view themselves to be on the side of the oppressed, and the oppressors, in this case, happen to be Jewish. So here we have students who are called out as anti-Semites in a public way who are in shock and disbelief by that classification, and they don't like it because of the social stigma and fears of retribution. At Columbia, students who were listed as anti-Semites on the doxing trucks did a sit-in with the dean at Columbia, demanding that the university both condemn the truck and stop them from parking on public roads near the university because they prefer not to be humiliated. I don't understand why you're speaking of shame. You said, you know, we prefer not to be humiliated. 
If they are anti-Semites and they proclaim it, then they're not being humiliated. That doesn't make sense. But I think it makes perfect sense to say, we don't want this truck on campus. I would say, this is not a good way to promote civil conversation. Truck shouting at things is no different than people shouting mindless slogans. It doesn't promote dialogue. It's not a good way to address anything. If you sign a public document and somebody broadcasts your name that you've signed a public document, that's what you have deliberately done yourself. There's no problem with that. But I still, as a university president, wouldn't like it because it doesn't promote civil discourse. It stirs the pot. What we want to do is have people have conversations, not just shout at each other and condemn each other. The people who do that are getting the logical consequence of what they did to sign this document. But the university should still do better than that. Many secular American Jews are liberal and support progressive causes. Many of my American Jewish liberal friends are in a state of shock that the progressive allies are condemning Jews and are expressing anti-Semitic opinions. Saul, were you shocked? No, not in the least. Jews at one point supported Stalin in the Soviet Union and were shocked that Stalin would sign a pact with Hitler. Shocked. My mother was one of those communists who got shocked and quit the party. I grew up with this. This is not a unique situation. Some political analysts suspect that many liberal Jews will become Republicans. How will progressive Jews deal with the cognitive dissonance? What's unique today is how educated Jews think of themselves, non-religious Jews. When I was growing up, non-religious Jews didn't identify with the religion, but they still had a strong set of Jewish identity based on either Israel or the persecution of Jews in the Soviet Union or something like that. That's where the Jewish identity came from, not from religion. At a later point, being Jewish meant being left-wing. If you were not left-wing, you didn't belong. You don't belong in a reform synagogue. You don't belong with us. So you can't turn against the left wing, even when they're anti-Jew. You have a choice. Which are you going to pick? You're going to pick your Jewish identity or your left wing identity when the Jewish identity is the left. That's what the problem is. And some will go one way and some will go the other. Or some will go one way and then change. It becomes too hard to be against the left wing. When your politics is based on identity, you're not going to make rational decisions. I end each episode with a note of optimism. What are you optimistic about as it relates to anti-Semitism in the United States? What I was genuinely surprised at is that business people and investors and donors, realizing this is not just an anti-Semitism problem, but it's part of a larger thing, what I see gives some reason not to despair. Thanks to Saul for joining us today. If you missed our previous podcast, the topic was resistance to change at colleges. Our speaker was Brian Rosenberg, who is previously the president of McAllister College for 17 years and is now a visiting professor at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. Brian has a new book entitled, Whatever It Is, I'm Against It, Resistance to Change in Higher Education. Brian explained why colleges cannot adapt and are moving slowly to allocate resources toward what students are currently interested in studying. Brian discussed whether doing research improves teaching and whether tenured professors who are poor teachers should be put out to pasture. And we examined where colleges would be better off altering their governance to be more like the private sector, where power is concentrated in the hands of its president 
and Board of Trustees instead of the faculty. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please subscribe to our weekly emails and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you for joining us today. Goodbye.